I found it fascinating in the process of this, and as I was looking forward months before we even got into this particular study, thinking about gospel-shaped mercy, when you think of mercy and the word mercy in its definition, you're often thinking, at least I do, about extending to someone else that which wasn't deserved, or God's extending his mercy to us. And thinking about gospel-shaped mercy, you think of us as individuals extending mercy to those who may or may not deserve it. And yet now every illustration he used tonight in the video, I'll use his, his terminology, own your own mess. We'll get into a, a little bit more about this as we develop uh, this a little bit tonight. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be for the bulk of our time tonight. We're going to review a little bit of, of what he had said. A lot of what I'm sharing tonight really comes directly from um, this study book. How many of you serve in children's ministry in any way at all? Okay, hands all over the place. If, if you've ever watched two infants put together in a group of toys, you don't have to watch very long till you see the sin nature in the innocent infants that are there. And I think one of the things that as we work through this, I want to kind of bring out is the fact that we delude ourselves into believing that as he was talking about tonight, we are not innocent. We delude ourselves into thinking that we are the innocent person in whatever conflict may have arisen. Now, there are times when we as individuals get ourselves into some sort of emotional altercation with another individual, and perhaps we didn't bring that on ourselves. Let's read the first few verses in Philippians 4. Starting in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then he goes into this. I entreat Iota and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Reconciliation is the reuniting or bringing back together that which has been separated for whatever reason. And the aim of reconciliation really is to establish peace between sometimes it's two people, sometimes it's families, sometimes it's entire communities, or even nations at war. Peace is the environment in which we as human beings flourish. So how do we strive for peace now when so many of our relationships are strained or fractured? Uh, And in the study here in Philippians, 
we're going to see how bringing reconciliation to others in our church and our community and uh, beyond uh, will help us. As we look at the first couple of verses here, starting in verse 2, we're told something about these two women. Iota and Syntyche, he entreats them to agree. He's not giving us a lot of detail, but it's very clear that if he's going to mention this in Scripture, there must have been something significant about which they did not agree. And yet we can read from this that they are believers. They're both Christians. We get that as we read what it says in 2 and 3. True companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together and whose names are in the book of life. So they labored side by side with Paul. I think sometimes we, we kind of image Paul as kind of up on this pedestal. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he's this great uh, man of God to which we aspire to, to be like. And, that, and that's okay. Uh, we are to strive to be like Christ just as Paul did. And yet he is putting these two women as side-by-side companions working toward the same goal of sharing the gospel. In the previous chapter, uh, Philippians 1.27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's encouraging, exhorting, pleading that we as groups of believers will strive for unity. And as I started sharing a little bit about putting infants together, unity is not something that with a sinful human nature is a natural thing. I used to think I was a fairly nice guy. Then I got married. And I began to realize how horribly selfish I truly am. And again, I think we can very easily delude ourselves as individuals into thinking, we're not really that bad. When the reality is, we are not only bad, we're horrible. In Scripture, uh, God describes the heart as deceitful and desperately wicked. Now, how can we as individuals say, I'm not really that bad, if God says we're deceitful and desperately wicked? So as we begin this process, we need to really, as he said in the illustration, own up, own up to our own mess. Interesting that he said we don't know the details of their disagreement. And I find it fascinating that he doesn't tell us what the disagreement was about. It was probably the color of the carpet in the church or something they didn't agree would, should be that color. I don't know. But when it comes down to it, really, the disagreement doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about what there was a disagreement. It matters that there was one. And that they weren't, apparently, based on what we're reading here in the beginning parts of chapter 4, they weren't seeking out a a means of unifying uh, their cause. 
Now, based on what we do read, uh, their disagreement cannot have been about false teaching, which threatened the gospel, because if it had been, we clearly would have heard from Paul on that. He would have corrected the false teaching, just as, just as he had done in chapter 3. And perhaps the most important point is when people become hostile towards each other, they start to make a record of wrongs. Now, I find it fascinating. If you've, if, if you've been a parent of children, you, you can see this in, in vibrant ways amongst your kids. And, and not that we don't do it as, as even the spouses. I think sometimes it's easier to see the things that, that um, we harbor in our hearts more easily in our children. Because I think in some respects, God gives us children to magnify the things that are bad in our own lives. And we learn from them. I'd said years ago that God gave me kids so I would grow up as I watched and raised our kids. But we start to make a record of wrongs. Every perceived insult or misunderstanding becomes a reason for staying hostile. You ever been in that environment with someone where, you you know, they may not, I mean, they may have looked at you cross-eyed and you just were so offended that they looked at you that way that clearly they are out to get you. When really you didn't even bother to take the time to consider that they weren't thinking about you at all and may not have intended any harm or ill will or anything. And we can very easily take what is a perceived slight and just kind of veer off into our own little path to anger. In this situation, coming to grips with the details can be counterproductive. And what Paul points out here is their common identity in Christ and their partnership together with him on the mission of presenting the gospel. Paul is saying, you have an identity in Christ. We are believers together because of what Christ did. We have something we need to accomplish. And this is a distraction from it. Well, what does it mean to agree in the Lord? I've often said if you've got 50 Baptists in a room, you're going to have at least 51 opinions sometimes more. But what does it mean to agree in the Lord? Look back at verses 2 and 3. I entreat Iota and uh, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's entreating them to agree. We must remember that we are united in Christ and have the same Heavenly Father and should have the same purpose, which is to know Christ and to make him known. (laughs) It's really easy for us to forget from whence we came. There are passages in Scripture that that we've read of, of even of Paul, such were some of you. And I think sometimes we forget that we came from someplace really ugly. And sometimes even in a a redeemed state, we can live and thrive. Well, thrive maybe is the wrong terminology. But we can um, dwell in an ugly place. And we need to keep in mind that we are all redeemed from that ugly place 
and that our goal is to, make, to know Christ and to make him known. My kids would tell you that one of the phrases you often hear from children, sometimes from adults, that's not fair. And I guarantee that if you ask any one of my girls, what did your dad say when you'd say it's not fair? If he's kind of giggling at me, if life, you know, if life were fair, we'd all be dead and bound for hell. That's fair. And yet we, as a group of believers in this room, can rejoice that that is not where we are headed, but it's only because of what he did, not because of anything I did. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our thinking as we continue. We may disagree on the precise way to understand some parts of the Bible or on how we do things as Christians, but we must not let these things ruin our unity on the important things. It is understandable that Christians will disagree with each other in all kinds of things. Uh, But we must agree about the thing that unites us, Christ and the gospel. Not only that, we must also let the main things be the main things. Iota and Syntyche are to act out of the gospel unity and friendship and see other problems as unimportant rather than acting out of their disagreement and seeing their gospel unity as mere and unimportant. We really need to focus on the reality of what we are here to do and gain a proper perspective on our task at hand, which really, if you think about the last time you had some sort of dispute with someone or something with which you were angry about with some other person, if you really stop and analyze whatever that was, could you at least come to terms with the fact that it really didn't have anything to do with Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, was buried, and rose again three days later? And if the thing about which you were arguing really didn't have any effect on that or your ability to tell others that, is it really that big a deal to hang on to? So why is Paul so anxious for them to agree with each other? In chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul has already said that Christians are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Both women here, as we're studying, need to be prepared to adopt the attitude of Jesus, who took the initiative, and they need to take the initiative as well, making themselves humble and serving others even if such actions come at great personal cost. Again, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And what we need to understand is that if these women don't show the same attitude as Christ, and agree in the Lord, their ability to do what we are here to do is going to be severely hampered. Their conduct will have an impact on how they and the rest of the Philippian Christians can share the gospel with unbelievers. 
I think it's sad when you th- think back perhaps in a, another church, maybe in the past history of, of this church, where there's been some sort of disagreement. And when you think about that, how that affects the testimony of God in our community. And I've seen it happen before where something very negative has happened and has had an effect on the community at large around them because people see People watch us because they expect if we are truly believing in what God claims in the Bible, then they expect to see a difference. How can others be involved in helping our brothers and sisters to be reconciled? Number one, Paul didn't take sides. There may be things to apologize for, but the bigger problem is the lack of reconciliation, not necessarily things that caused it. We should aim to help those who disagree to be reconciled. So the things about which we argue really don't matter. What does matter is that we are a unified body of Christ seeking to share Christ on the cross and his resurrection so that others may come to Christ. The problem is not just for the women. It is a problem for the whole congregation, and that's why Paul appeals for the congregation members to be part of that reconciliation process. We as believers should remind each other of the things that unite us. Number one, who Jesus is, why he came, and our responsibility to tell others about him. Back in the first chapter of Philippians, the first four verses, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. So we need to have as believers that same love, that same intent, that same attitude of prayer and support for one another. We must be in full agreement and of one mind and do nothing from rivalry or conceit. There may be things about which we need to repent. There may be disagreements that we've never cared for that we need to rectify. That's what he was talking a bit about in the video. And I got to tell you, as I was listening to Pastor Ron talking about us being an infectious church, this morning, I was you know, kind of scratching my head going, wow, how can we be an infectious church if we aren't willing to do what's necessary to reconcile with one another when things like this come up? I used to tell, I was a youth pastor years ago in my first full-time pastorate, and I used to tell my teens, you know, you are being a witness whether you like it or not. Stop and think about it. You are being a witness, whether you like it or not. The question is, are you being a good one or a bad one? Because if people know that you're a believer, they have expectations. Sometimes they're completely unrealistic. But we need to be seeking to be like Christ so that through our lives, they will see Christ and not see disagreements and not see infighting or backbiting or arguing, as the case may be. How can we be, be maintainers of peace as well as, as well as makers of it? 
You know the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, correct? A peacekeeper can often be the person who just kind of disappears and doesn't want to stir up anything. You know, there could be not only a pink elephant in the room that's not being addressed, there could be a herd of them. But in order to keep peace, they just don't say anything. A peacemaker is one who steps forward and says, hey, there's a pink elephant we need to address and rectifies the problem. I remember years ago an incident um, talking with someone who was part of a fairly sizable family and um, they had a cousin by marriage with whom there had been real bitterness that had been built up. And I got talking with them, and the subject had come up when people were in close proximity, so to speak. Um, they were all on, you know, if it's family, they can be gathered on the same piece of property, and then you kind of have to at least be civil, sort of, to one another. And I got talking to, to the one who felt terribly wronged. And I said, how long has this been going on? Nine years. Nine years. So you're, you've, you've forgiven them, right? No, not until they come and, and they said some qualifications. They weren't going to be willing to forgive until thus and so had been done putting qualifications on forgiveness. Did Jesus put qualifications on forgiveness for us? So I asked the person, I said, so is 70 times 7 still in the New Testament, or did they take that part out? Well, yeah, I guess you're right. Nine years of wasted opportunities for good relationships Number one, joy. Division often arises from discontentment in in some form or another. When we are joyful, recognizing that we have received from God in the gospel, we will radiate a contentment that others will be hungry for, and we will show that our priorities are in a positive place. So we need to strive for joy. In reasonableness, as we look at Go back and look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's where joy comes from. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness... How many say that word? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. When we react unreasonably to others or let our emotions get a hold of us or out of proportion, we can easily drive others away from us and create difficult situations. Having a sense of perspective and willingness to ponder things away from our immediate emotional reaction, will help stop conflict from developing. Sometimes when you think about the arguments, person A or person B is just plain being unreasonable or with unreasonable expectations. So looking back at verse 5, it says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And he says this, Understand the times. If the Lord really is at hand, Jesus is both present with us and will also return to judge. We are in the era of gospel witness to the world, and that needs to be our chief goal and focus. We've said that a couple of times already. Anything that slows, distracts, or deflects us from that must be done away with. 
And you can easily see how interpersonal conflict with anyone in our local church can truly be a hindrance to that. Then in verse 6, he talks about us going to the Lord in prayer. When we are angry with someone else, we should pray for them and for our own reaction to them. Do you find it difficult to pray for someone you're really ticked off at? I found that if I begin praying for someone I might be angry with, usually over something stupid, I'm sure, it's really hard to be praying for that person and for their well-being and stay angry. If we're praying for them, it'll help us respond better and love them more, and God will answer our prayers for these problems. That's kind of what he does. Also says in verse 6, he's talking about prayer and thanksgiving. When we are grateful... We are expressing contentment. When we are able to thank the Lord for the people we struggle with relationally, it helps us to think about them in a different way. And I don't mean, you know, thank you, Lord, for that ignoramus. We we need to truly be grateful for what God has brought our way. Maybe God has brought that conflict with the person because he's trying to teach you something that you have been too dumb to learn yet. I preach to myself as well. That's... But sometimes I think we forget the fact that we're still growing up. We have not arrived. In verse 7, he talks about our dependence on God. This is a wonderful promise to, com- to claim if you are anxious about a relationship. But it is also an instruction to continue to dwell on the gospel and how it has changed you. We are focused on how we've been changed by the gospel and focused on the fact that we need to share that with others. Little petty things will seem pale in in significance to that. God's peace, won for us through Jesus' death on the cross, is now what we should have controlling our hearts and minds and our emotional reactions to others. Now, he's been talking about us and reconciling with believers. How might we reconcile family, friends, work colleagues, or people in the community who may not be believers? We cannot appeal to our unity in Christ, the commands of the gospel, or the importance of our witness when the parties are not believers. But there are ways in which we can point out the harm that people are doing to themselves and to others. And I, uh, you've probably had opportunity to see how unforgiveness can take a terrible toll on a person. I was referencing someone that I, uh, Pastor Tim and I were talking after staff meeting somewhere in the last few weeks. And we were talking a little bit about some challenges in ministry that, that um, occasionally come up. And I, I referenced a woman from a ministry years ago who I think probably to this day, in my experience with people in ministry, is probably the most bitter person I've ever known. And as one of my college classmates, classmates used to say, it looked like she'd been sucking green persimmons. She just was a cantankerous old goat that just couldn't be happy about anything. She was bitter. I don't know what she was bitter about. But it almost seemed like a poison in that it, she could not interact with anyone else around her because this poison was seemingly eating her from the inside out, this bitterness. Unforgiveness takes a terrible, tolls on tho- a terrible toll on those who hang on to it. There's always collateral damage in a family or community when people pursue a hostile or silent feud. 
So, here's what we do. By being calm, rational, and gentle, we may be able to point people away from focusing on the problem and help them look for solutions. It may be that you can appeal to someone to be the better man or the better woman, as the case may be, and take the initiative. He was talking a little bit about that in the video. In the end, we need to recognize that our appeals may fall on deaf ears because forgiveness is hard and admitting wrong is very difficult. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 that peacemakers will be blessed. So it is important that we strive to play a role whenever possible to encourage that role of peace. Reconciliation can be an enormous blessing to families, workplaces, or whole communities because the benefit is for all. Now here's a few things, and I've got to wrap this up. And he said some of these things in the video, so this, this may sound a little repetitive, but I think it bears repeating. Number one, everyone needs reconciliation. Okay, what's happening in your life? But we all need reconciliation. And if nothing else, we need to remember the reconciliation that we were granted in the salvation freely given to us. Jesus takes unreconciled relationships very seriously, and the first step to that reconciliation is understanding that we need it. We are not innocent. Two, everyone is responsible for reconciliation. We cannot see the elephant in the room and not address it. It has to be dealt with. Seeking reconciliation is your responsibility. As he said in the video that we watched, it's not just for specialists. And I love the way he said it. It's not just for specialists. It's for ordinaries. That's all of us. He even talked about leaving the gift at the altar and going and seeking out that reconciliation before you come and worship before the Lord. It's that important. He talked about the importance of reconciliation in that we cannot separate our vertical relationship with God from our horizontal relationships with others. I don't think I'd really thought about it necessarily in that way. But if we're not keeping a proper plane in in our relationships horizontally with believers here on earth or unbelievers, as the case may be, then our relationship with God is is also not going to be correct. We rarely seek reconciliation with others because it is costly. It means that we have to own our mess, as he said, and we have to make the first move. We have to admit that we're not the heroes of the story. Jesus is. And he shows us that we're just as much the villains as anyone else. We are the tragic cases. It is urgent that we take care for this. And lastly, there is hope for the unreconciled. Jesus left the glory of heaven and placed himself in the midst of our chaos. He came to set things right with the people who set things wrong to begin with. God did not need to be reconciled. He was not obliged to be reconciled with us. He took on the full weight of responsibility on himself. On the cross, Jesus took all of our hatred, anger, envy, strife, resentment, bitterness, and jealousy on himself and reconciled us to him forever. We need to be willing to take that step and move forward in a relationship so that our horizontal relationships can be right with one another, 
so that our vertical relationship with Almighty God will not be hindered. And in that way, we together as a church body can together stay on, on course in sharing the gospel as we are expected to. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to you that you chose to reconcile us to you. Lord, I want to thank you that that reconciliation didn't depend on me in any way. For I'm certain that it would never have happened. Lord, help us to take a page out of your book and reconcile with those with whom we have difficulty. Lord, we're selfish human beings, saved by grace but affected by sin. And I pray that as we seek to stay on course with sharing the gospel with others, that we would make sure our relationships with one another are right, that we can stay right with you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.